Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, November 10th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series and presented in collaboration with the Foreign Policy Research Institute. In this program, presented during the centennial of the First World War Armistice, historian John H. Maurer illuminates President Woodrow Wilson's role in negotiating peace in Europe and bringing the Great War to a conclusion. This morning... Uh, we are looking back 100 years to the end of the Great War, the First World War. Tomorrow will be the 100th anniversary of the ending of that war, November 11th. When we think about November 11th, what that means is the end of the fighting on the Western Front in France and in Belgium, in Western Europe. At the 11th hour, the 11th day, the 11th month, that's when the fighting stopped on the Western Front. At first it was called Armistice Day. Now we uh, recognize it as a day for veterans. All of you who are veterans here in the audience, I want to salute you for your service to our country. I, I have taught for 30 years at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And it has been my great pleasure uh, to be able to teach so many fine officers of all the armed services over that 30-year period. Uh, In a seminar that I currently am teaching there, uh, one of the officers, uh, a young gentleman uh, in his early 30s, who has had about 10 years of service in the Army. He has had six tours of duty to Afghanistan in that period of time. We ask a lot of the members of our armed services as they undertake campaigns around the world to protect us. And so on this day tomorrow, Veterans Day, it is uh, fitting that we remember all of those who have sacrificed Uh, for our country, not only in the past, but also uh, today. Now, what I'm going to talk about is Woodrow Wilson, president of the United States during this period of the First World War. And this period is an important period in American history because the United States was already a great power, a superpower in its economic potential, economic strength. But it was not playing a larger role in the world stage outside of the Western Hemisphere. We were very much a hemispheric power. Woodrow Wilson, during his presidency, the United States, the American Eagle spreads its wings and carries out a major fighting campaigns in Europe. In other words, the United States is emerging as a superpower at this period of time. We're taking on a much larger role in world affairs. Hence, it is a critical turning point in American history where the United States is starting to play a larger role in the world stage. And the question that Americans faced then 
and it's a question that we face a hundred years later, is what is the role that the U.S. should play on the world stage? How much should the American eagle spread its wings around the world? What is prudent, proper for America's role in the world? How should we exert our power? How can we best exert our power? So the questions that were being faced by Americans at that time are also the questions that we face today. And of course, there are no easy answers to any of these questions. It would, we would be fortunate if there were easy answers. But there are always tough decisions that have to be made. And we have to rethink constantly what role we are playing in the world. Well, Woodrow Wilson himself, the individual, is, as we like to say, a complicated person. A bundle of contradictions. On the one hand, a progressive who wants to use the federal government to better the lot of the American people in social and economic sphere. But on the other hand, he supported segregation of the American workforce. President Wilson was also one of the leading scholars of his time. As a scholar, he was one of the leading experts, if not the leading expert, on the American Constitution and American domestic politics. And yet, as president, he managed to mishandle American domestic politics at the end of the First World War, and this had a huge impact on American politics decision-making in making the peace. Uh, The president, as a scholar, as a professional scholar, is committed to the free play of ideas. And yet, as president, he sought to curb uh, expressions of dissent that opposed him. More on that in my talk. President Wilson wanted to be the great peacemaker. He wanted to mediate the war involving the warring states of Europe, to bring it to an end, to settle the differences between the two sides. Instead of being the peacemaker, he took America into the war and brought American power to bear overwhelmingly on the side of Britain and France to defeat Imperial Germany. So when we look at Wilson, we see all of these contradictions. And that's why he's a controversial figure today. We see his actions and his words, and they seem at times to be contradictory. Well, today, my talk has three parts to it. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You all saw that coming, right? Uh, What I want to focus on today is I want to look at the interplay of American domestic politics on America's role in the world and in the First World War. So keep that in mind. That's the red thread running through my talk this morning. How does American domestic politics influence influence our role uh, in the world? Well, part one, before the Great War. Um, Woodrow Wilson was uh, one of the great scholars of his time. He was president of the American Political Science Association, very well educated, attending some of our top universities, 
Davidson College, uh, Princeton University, University of Virginia Law School, and received a PhD from Johns Hopkins University. And there you see him in his academic robes. Author of books and articles about American politics, uh, the Constitution. We would see him as a scholar of American politics and also comparative politics. The last book he wrote before he went on to become president was Constitutional Government in the United States. And in this book, he brings up uh, the topic that we're going to, um, discussing this morning, which is what is the interplay between American domestic politics and America on the world scene? And in this book, Wilson says that our president can no longer just confine himself to domestic politics that American presidents have been mostly concerned about domestic politics, the internal situation within our country. But now the United States is a great power. As he says, it's a power of the first rank in our resources, our economic might, our population. So we're a much stronger country than we had been previously in our history. Also, we had fought a war with Spain, and we acquired territories in the Caribbean, and also in the Pacific. The United States is now playing a much larger role on the world scene. And he highlighted the American president now has to act as one of those great powers in the world. In other words, the American president has to be concerned with American security in the world and America's role in the world. And again, that clause tacked on there. Our president must be involved in the world, but whether he act greatly and wisely or not. Uh, again, while, what role does our president play? Is he going to be uh, a wise leader on the world stage? Well, um, uh, Wilson had been president of Princeton University. He then went on to become governor of New Jersey. And then in 19... 19- 12, in the presidential election, he ran for office of the presidency. His opponent was the incumbent president, Republican, William Howard Taft. It's a great photograph there, wonderful mustache. What's happened to those mustaches? Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, bolding from the Republican Party, running on the progressive ticket. Wow, they knew how to speak back then. Bully. You can see the reporters there, the gentlemen of the press, taking down his his notes. Uh, On the campaign trail, while in Milwaukee, uh, there was an assassination attempt on Theodore Roosevelt. And look at the New York Times headline, Maniac in Milwaukee shoots Colonel Roosevelt. Now, uh, Roosevelt had been, Theodore Roosevelt had been president, as you know. But look how he's referred to, not as former president Roosevelt. He's referred to as Colonel Roosevelt, again, because of his role in the Spanish-American uh, war. But he ignores the wound and speaks for an hour. Um, the man who took a shot at him said that he had had a dream. And in this dream, William McKinley, the president who had been assassinated in Buffalo by an anarchist, that William McKinley came to him in his dream and said that Theodore Roosevelt was behind the assassination. Okay. Well, um, you have Taft and Roosevelt, and then uh, Woodrow Wilson running for the Democrats in this three-way election. Well, the result on the first Tuesday in November of 1912, as you can see, this is how the Electoral College uh, uh, played out. 
Again, red states here not being Republican as we typically see it, but red states here being for the Democrats. And as you can see, poor President Taft, he only carried Utah and Vermont. Meanwhile, uh, Theodore Roosevelt on the progressive, the Bull Moose Party, he's uh, carrying uh, some important states. And then in the Electoral College, it's quite a landslide for Woodrow Wilson. But when you look at the popular vote, you see that he only got about 42% of the popular uh, vote. Um, Again, uh, this is one of the most successful examples of a third party uh, running for the presidency. Uh, In fact, Theodore Roosevelt, running as a third party candidate, got more people to vote for him than for the Republican, William Howard Taft. Well, in uh, March of 1913, back then we used to have the inaugurations in March, uh, President Wilson took the oath of office as President of the United States. Well, 18 months into his presidency, the Great War in Europe breaks out. Uh, In August of 1914, the fighting starts. Uh, Europe is engulfed in this great war as the great powers of Europe fight each other. Now, when we think of the Great War, war, we think about the trenches of the Western Front, that lunar landscape of soldiers going back and forth. And for what gain? Thousands being killed and maimed. And here you see a French soldier charging the enemy entrenchments, being hit, uh, going down. Of course, attack and counterattack. Again, look at this rugged landscape the soldiers are fighting in. Uh, Just incredible photographs being taken of the horror of the Western Front. Well, the fighting was not just on land. The fighting also took place at sea. The British, at the beginning of the war, instituted a blockade, economic warfare, on Germany to try to deny Germany uh, inputs from the outside world, uh, to be able to uh, uh, import supplies, uh, raw materials, but also food, Now, Germany, in response, wanted to launch a blockade of the British Isles. And so what they did was started a submarine campaign against worldwide shipping. Not just against British shipping, but neutral shipping. Because you see, on the high seas, uh, a British ship could put up a neutral flag. Now, that's a violation of international law. But if you're a skipper of a ship, you want to protect yourself. You're not going to run a big British flag because that's a target, a bullseye for the German submarines. So the Germans say, as long as they're violating international law, we can't discriminate between what are British merchant ships and what are neutral merchant ships. So we have to sink the ball. That's what's called unrestricted submarine warfare. And for the German public, the submarine is seen as the wonder weapon. It's a vengeance weapon, much as in the Second World War, the German rockets, the V-1, V-2s, would be used to attack Britain. Well, in the First World War, it's the submarines. This is how they're going to go back and hit Britain. And as you can see from this postage stamp here, it says, God strafe England. God punish England. And what is the instrument, God's instrument to punish England? Well, it's the submarine heading out on the dawn patrol, out onto the high seas to sink the shipping of the world, and hence bring Britain to its knees. Well, in one of the famous episodes in May of 1915, the great Cunard liner, the Lusitania, steaming from New York to England, was torpedoed by a German submarine. 
The result was it sank very quickly. Large loss of life. This is um, uh, the way um, Robert Ballard, who has discovered the wreck of the Lusitania off the southern coast of Ireland, uh, Kent Marshall, an artist, his drawings of, of this to show what the Lusitania looks like now on the bottom. Uh, and here's the New York Times headline, <clears throat> again laying out that over a thousand dead, a large number of Americans went down with the Lusitania as well. This creates a crisis in German-American relations. Uh, this is seen as a wanton act uh, of destruction that is outside international norms, that the Germans are sinking a passenger ship uh, like this, and that also for the United States, that a large number of Americans have lost their lives uh, in this attack. Well, Theodore Roosevelt right away tweeted out, uh, that's murder. Actually, he was called by an associate uh, press reporter in the middle of the night and said, what are your comments, Colonel Roosevelt? And he said, well, that's murder. And it's piracy, piracy on a vaster scale. The Germans are, are guilty of this act of murder and piracy. The United States should take a hard line against Germany. Now, Woodrow Wilson initially uh, is quiet about it. Several days later in Philadelphia, to a group of uh, naturalized citizens, he gives a speech in which he uses this phrase that uh, there's such a thing, as he said, as a man being too proud to fight. In other words, the Germans are so much in the wrong. It's so clear that they're wrong that in their face, uh, uh, in such a belligerent way as Colonel Roosevelt would have us be. By the way, uh, Wilson said this phrase and he immediately regretted it because all of a sudden he becomes attacked um, from people in the country who say, you're not taking a hard enough line against the Germans. You've got to get them to back down, make sure that they drop this unrestricted submarine warfare. Well, Wilson uh, negotiates with uh, the Germans, and he does get them over time to withdraw to uh, stop using submarines in the way that they had that had led to the sinking of the Lusitania. So in a way, he has been successful as a diplomat in getting the Germans to back off. Here's the German wonder weapon that's being sold to the German public as being very effective, and yet the German leadership is backing off in its use because they're afraid they don't want to provoke the United States into war. Wilson, in effect, has used what we call today a red line, a red line that says that Germany can't uh, use its submarines in this unrestricted way. Well, the big question is war or peace. Uh, The Wilson administration uh, is now, this is one of the most important issues facing the American people and the government. Within Wilson's government, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy the number two civilian post in the Navy Department. In other words, one of our top defense officials is none other than the 30-something Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, What a wonderful photograph there that captures him at this time, around 1916. Um, Roosevelt, this Roosevelt, actually has more in common with Theodore Roosevelt than he does with Wilson. Behind the scenes... Franklin D. Roosevelt thinks 
that the United States has to get into this war. Why? Because he's afraid of a German victory in this war. He agrees with his relative Theodore Roosevelt. Now, behind the scenes, he believes that the U.S. has to get into the war, but publicly he follows the administration line of trying to keep us out of war. What's important about this? Well, again, fast forward another generation to 1939-1940. In that critical period of time of the Nazi victories in Europe, Franklin D. Roosevelt, as our president, understands the danger of a German hegemony in Europe, that that can become a threat to the United States, and that the United States has to play that larger role in world affairs to fight against aggressive powers on the world scene. So what you're seeing here is Franklin D. Roosevelt thinking through, thinking through American national security concerns. What goes on in Europe doesn't stay in Europe. It has an impact on the United States. Well, the election of 1916, Wilson is up for re-election, and here you see a campaign button. War in Europe, but peace in America. God bless Wilson. And again, one of the popular phrases of the time of Wilson's trumpeting, the Democrats are trumpeting, is he kept us out of war. Again, the American people are divided on this. On the one hand, they don't like German actions. On the other hand, they don't want to be involved in the great war in Europe. Um, Again, that's a reasonable position to take. And Wilson understands that. Um, On the other side, Theodore Roosevelt is criticizing uh, uh, Wilson for his stance. And, and, uh, you know, today we think, oh, we live in such a partisan period of time in which our political leaders trade all these barbs. Well, Well, look at this. Wilson is guilty of what? Ignoble shirking gets worse. Utterly misleading phrase. What is it? The phrase of a coward. He kept us out of war. This is a public statement by Theodore Roosevelt, which is that the president is a coward and that this phrase kept us out of war is ignoble. It's beneath the dignity of the United States. Uh, Wilson's response to a group of of, of students who uh, came to his summer uh, home in New Jersey He doesn't mention Theodore Roosevelt by name, but this is a direct response to uh, the the remark of Roosevelt calling Wilson a coward. He says it's an articulate voice, but it's shot through with every form of what? Bitterness. Ugly form of hate. Roosevelt is guilty of an ugly form of hate. And why debased purpose of revenge? It's all personal. It's all personal. And, And again... Uh, Here, the politics, it's not just business. It does become deeply personal. And that's part of the story of American politics at this time. Well, the election comes. Uh, Wilson thought that he wasn't going to be reelected. And it is uh, uh, a very narrow election. Uh, Wilson runs against against, uh, Hughes on the Republican ticket. Uh, As you can see, in popular vote, it's close. Electoral vote, it's close. Use should have won. Typically, Republican states like Ohio and California at this time, if they had gone for uh, uh, Charles Evans Hughes, the result was he would have been elected our president in 1916. But Wilson pulls out an unexpected victory. 
In fact, Franklin D. Roosevelt, I mentioned him just a moment ago, uh, he thought that they were going to lose the election. But as the results started to come in, all of a sudden he got more excited because he realized that Wilson was going to pull off this upset victory, that the Democrats were going to keep control of the White House. The Democrats also kept a narrow lead in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. So Wilson is presiding over uh, not only the White House, but a Congress that is also led by the Democrats. To the second part of my talk, America goes to war. Well, we like to say the enemy gets a vote. We don't determine everything. There's an outside world out there. Other other players, other countries uh, have an impact on us. What they do, uh, what they do to us leads us to have to respond. International politics is an interaction. We don't control everything. We like to think that we can, but we can't. Other countries have a big say in the world. They shape our decisions, our courses of action, and what we can do. Well, in the winter of 1916-17, just after the election in the United States, Germany's leaders are in a desperate situation. They think they're losing the war. And in this desperate situation, the Kaiser is convinced by his admirals and generals, and here you see uh, the top two German generals on the left, uh, Field Marshal Hindenburg, and on the right, um, uh, General Ludendorff. Uh, The generals and admirals convince the Kaiser that they have to go back to unrestricted warfare. Submarine warfare. That's the only way Germany can win the war. They cannot win the war on land. They have to win it at sea by striking at the world's shipping. The German admirals, they're so convinced that they can win at sea, that they can win within six months. Their German leadership knows full well that they're crossing that Wilsonian red line. But they decide, well, we're going to do that. Because if we can win quickly before American power can be brought to bear in Europe, we can win the war by winning the war at sea and strangling British commerce. Again, this requires that you sink all ships, not just British flagships, but ships that might have an American flag on it. Here you see a painting by the Kaiser's favorite maritime artist by the name of Willy Stoer. And what you see here is an American ship flag on it, or at least flagged, German submarine bringing its guns to bear against it, sinking that American ship. Again, this is the Kaiser's favorite uh, artist. You know, thinking, ah, this is what I like to see. Ships being sunk, American ships being sunk. Well, for Wilson, this is warfare against mankind. This is a barbaric form of warfare, and it's striking at the North Atlantic sea lanes. American security now is being challenged by Germany. They've crossed a red line. Well, in April 1917, only a month after his inauguration, uh, Wilson goes and asks for a declaration of war from the Congress. And here's his speech on the front page of the New York Times. And in it, he says that the world must be made safe for democracy. This is one of the phrases that is uh, quoted over and over again. And what does he mean by that? Well, can democracy in America, our free institutions and way of life, can we have that in a hostile international environment? 
If the international environment is very dangerous and there's high threats to us, doesn't that mean that our civil liberties, our institutions, have to be shaped more toward providing for national security? In other words, there's a trade-off. The more dangerous the international environment is, then our political system at home has to take on more of the national security state. There's a connection between the two. By promoting democracy abroad, you're also promoting democracy at home, making the world safe for American democracy. Um, uh, This is a, a big aim he's aiming for here. And again, how will there be peace in the world? Well, it will be planted upon what he calls the tested foundations of political liberty. The spread of democracy around the world makes the world more peaceful. This is called the democratic peace theory by international relation experts uh, today. So what we talk about today, again, Wilson has very much in mind 100 years ago. Today, of course, we say, well, can we really expand democracy? How effective can we be in doing that in other countries, other regions of the world? Can we overcommit ourselves to a task that's just too difficult, maybe even impossible? Well, in the United States, the German actions galvanized the American public. While the American public had been of two minds at election time, 1916, by April 1917, the American public has come on board and is very much committed that the United States has to fight this war and enter into this war, that Germany has provoked it. And here you see flags adorning uh, Fifth Avenue in New York. The United States decides to raise a big army, volunteers and also conscription, to send an American force overseas, over there, to fight against the Germans in Europe. Now, not everybody remained convinced, though, that the United States should be involved in the war and that there should be conscription. Again, think about it that the government says, I want you to serve, whether you want to serve or not. You are being conscripted and sent into the armed forces. It's very controversial. Well, Eugene Debs, who's a presidential candidate for the Socialist Party, he didn't agree with the idea of conscription. And uh, in Ohio in 1918, and here you see him giving his speech, he attacked the idea of conscription as being an assault on American civil liberties. When you read the speech, you find he's very careful in the words that he uses. But nonetheless, the Wilson administration thought that this speech by Debs uh, was undermining the war effort. And the government had passed sedition laws uh, uh, during the war. And so he is brought to trial and convicted Here's an American presidential candidate who has become prisoner, federal prisoner, 9653, sent to a federal penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, um, this is what Wilson had to say about him. Again, look at the barbs. Uh, After the war was over, by the way, uh, many in the administration said to Wilson, why don't you pardon Debs or commute his sentence? And Wilson said no. No, because what's happening? Americans went over to fight in Europe for the cause of civilization. What did Debs do? 
sniping, attacking, denouncing them behind the scenes, publicly, you know, in his speeches. The man's a traitor, and Wilson would never pardon him during his administration. Well, in the 1920 presidential election, Debs ran for president from his jail cell in Atlanta, Georgia. And as you can see, for president convict number 9653, he got almost a million votes, by the way, in 1920 uh, in running for office. Uh, Wilson's successor, uh, Warren G. Harding, uh, commuted commuted uh, Debs's sentence and, in fact, invited Debs to the White House for, uh, for dinner. Well, the Kaiser, the Germans, they're going to try to bring this war to an end. As it turns out, the submarine gamble didn't work for them. The British and the Americans are able to manage the German submarine threat primarily by using convoys for escorting ships across the Atlantic. Now the Kaiser and his generals think they have to win the war on land. They weren't able to win it at sea, so now they want to win it on land by carrying out a major offensive on the Western Front in France. And so what is known as the Kaiser's Battle, it's Germany's last bid for victory on the Western Front. On the Western Front, you can see there's the Straits of Dover and Paris down here. The British Army was positioned on that sector of the Western Front, running from Belgium uh, down to Compiègne. Well, the German generals, their plan for victory is to launch a big offensive to defeat the British army, to drive it into the sea by a series of offenses. And again, why am I highlighting this? Because in the Second World War, you're going to see the German generals do very much the same thing, but they have greater success. They do drive the British army into the sea. Famous story of Dunkirk. They're able to separate the British and French armies and drive the British into the sea. Colossal military disaster in 1940. Hitler's big triumph over the French and the British on land in France. Well, uh, the Germans are doing this in the First World War. It's so important when you study the Second World War to understand the context of the First World War. Uh, The First World War shapes the decisions of the leaders a generation later. Well, again, the Germans are going to try to break through. And on March 21st, 1918, the Kaiser's battle begins. The Germans mass large forces on the Western Front, preceded by a large artillery barrage. The German troops go over the top and are advancing, pushing the British armies back. It becomes close to a rout, in fact. David Lloyd George, who's, British, who's Britain's prime minister, at the end of March, early April, 1918, he says, things are looking really bad for us. It's a disaster. Looks like the British army is going to be pushed into the seas. When you look at what the British and French are saying at this time, you realize they think they're going to lose. They think the Germans are going to win on this offensive, that they are going to break through. The commander of the British forces in Britain, he says, I have to prepare now for a German invasion because I don't know how many British troops are going to be able to be evacuated from France. Again, very much like the story of 1940, a generation later. Well, what can stop the Germans? The British make a desperate appeal to Wilson. Send over American troops as quickly as you can, as many as you can. The British ambassador, Lord Redding, goes in to Wilson the time of this German offensive and says, can you ship over American troops? And this is Wilson's response. 
He understands how desperate the situation is, that American forces have to be sent over quickly. Young American soldiers have to get to France as quickly as possible in large numbers. The American plan had been to deploy an army of two million soldiers to France by the end of 1919 so that the Americans could take part in a big offensive in 1920 to defeat Germany. What happens instead is that whole timetable is accelerated so that by Armistice Day, 1918, a full year earlier, the United States has deployed two million soldiers to France. So the timetable has accelerated greatly to get American soldiers over there to back up the French and the British. So the Yanks are coming and over there. If my voice were better, I would sing it for you. (laughs) Instead, go to YouTube and, and hear Enrico Caruso sing it. It's incredible. I mean, when you listen to his voice, you hear that sort of patriotism coming out of going on to fight the Germans. Well, the Yanks are coming. Uh, that requires that we win the Battle of the Atlantic in the First World War, that we're able to defeat the German submarine, and American destroyers play a key role in helping the British to defeat the German submarines, being based in Ireland and in England, that ships are convoyed, that priority goes to shipping troops over, Americans over. The uh, uh, British uh, say, we have to get the American troops over here, even if that means curtailing food supplies. It's more important that we get American soldiers to France and the British people will just have to tighten their belt a bit when it comes to to food supplies. Priority is to get soldiers over to France. And here you see the American 1st Division going over the top, fighting uh, against the Germans, helping to beat back the German offensive. The 2nd Division of the U.S., which included a brigade of Marines fighting in Belleau Wood outside of Paris, again, blunting the German offensive the big Kaiser's battle, and helping the British and French to push back, push back the German offensives. The result is that not only is the German offensive stopped and then pushed back, but the Allies decide, let's continue the offensive. Let's continue to drive the Germans back. And so in the summer and fall of 1918, There's a whole series of coordinated offensives of the British armies in northern France and in Belgium, Flanders, the French armies in the middle, and a newly formed American army fighting, driving through the Meuse-Argonne sector of of the uh, Western Front. Uh, General Pershing, who is in charge of that American army, uh, as he says, the American people are proud to be engaged what was then called the greatest battle in world history. The result is that the German army is beaten. Its morale is broken. It is forced back all along the front. And I want to highlight this because in the period between the two world wars, German nationalist extremists, including the Nazis, highlighted that the German army had never been beaten in the field. Instead, the German army had been stabbed in the back by traitors on the home front. Well, that's not the case. The German army was beaten in the field. Its offensive had been stopped. They had been pushed back. And then the German gains were being rolled back. The Allied armies are marching toward the Rhine. Indeed, because the German armies had been beaten, the German military leadership asked for an armistice. 
They go to the political masters in Germany and say, we can't withstand these offensives. The morale of the army is broken. We have to get an armistice, a ceasefire, as quickly as possible. Well, the American army plays that role in Meuse-Argonne. Here's American soldiers firing French artillery tubes. We couldn't bring over our own artillery because of the shipping shortage. So instead, French-manufactured artillery is being used uh, in the battle. Americans using French tanks, again in the Meuse-Argonne, fighting their way uh, forward. Well, the armistice is signed uh, and then goes into effect on November 11th. And as you can see here, Uh, in the New York Times headline that it says war ends at 6 o'clock New York time. Of course, the five-hour difference uh, over to uh, Europe. And again, the uh, Kaiser's regime is overthrown by a revolution within Germany. Uh, On November 11th, the Capitol building in Washington is illuminated, illuminated to highlight, again, the great victory that the Allies and Associated Powers have won over Germany. Well, 1918 is also an election year. It's a midterm election. We've just gone through a midterm election. Uh, A week before the armistice went into effect, the Tuesday before uh, the armistice went into effect, uh, the Americans went to the polls, Republicans against Democrats. And the result is that in the House, the Republicans in the midterm elections scored a major victory. Uh, gaining a number of seats from the Democrats. So Wilson is losing control of the Congress, even as the war is coming to an end. And more importantly, for peacemaking, for ratifying any treaties, the Senate shifts from the Democrats to a a narrow margin uh, in favor of the Republicans. Part three, making peace. Well, in Europe, Wilson has to deal with two other major leaders. Uh, David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, and Georges Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister. Winston Churchill called these three men the masters of the world. Their armies have been successful on the battlefield. Now they're going to make the peace, and they meet in Paris. In December of 1918, Woodrow Wilson steams over to Europe to be part of the negotiations. He's going to take an active role in the negotiations to end the war. Clemenceau, Georges Clemenceau, ardent French nationalist, uh, plays a critically important role, decisive role, in buoying up French morale in 1917 and 18. The French were on the ropes in 1917. Their resistance might have collapsed. But Clemenceau becomes that heroic war leader who inspires the French people and armed forces to keep fighting at a desperate time. He wants a harsh peace imposed upon Germany because Germany has invaded France and done immense damage to France during the First World War. He was married to an American woman. He taught in the United States for a time, and he was fluent in English. Uh, And he married uh, one of his students, in fact, Uh, and uh, his wife had an affair on him. And so he reflected on on his life at this time. He was 77, by the way, at the time of uh, the Paris Peace Conference. He said, my wife, my wife acted badly. I got rid of her. (laughs) My children have not been a success. 
My friends have left me. But I still have my teeth. (laughs) And he sure did have teeth. As I said, he wants to sick those teeth right into Germany. Uh, He wants a punitive peace, a peace that will ensure that Germany will never be able to revive its strength and come back and invade France again. Um, This is what Clemenceau had to say about Wilson. Talking to Wilson is like talking to Jesus Christ. uh, Wilson comes across as this arrogant individual who's coming here to sort of spread the message. And there's one truth, and it's Wilson's truth. And Wilson wants to temper Clemenceau's harsh demands on Germany. He wants to create a peace in which Germany has some buy-in to the peace. Rather than trying to keep them down, get the Germans to be part of the solution to the post-war world. This creates fighting back and forth uh, in the negotiations between Wilson and Clemenceau. David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, also a remarkable leader in the First World War, plays a critical role in keeping Britain in the fight. Uh, He has a more favorable view of Wilson. Uh, But notice what he says, I'm one of the few who think him honest, meaning that other people don't think him honest. But no, he has a genuine love of liberty, anxious to improve the position of the underdog. Lloyd George and Wilson generally work well together, trying to temper temper, uh, Clemenceau's demands. Well, on the 28th of June, 1919, five years to the day after the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife had been assassinated at Sarajevo that had triggered the First World War, the signing takes place in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles, And here you see the German delegation signing it in front of Wilson and Clemenceau and Lloyd George, the peace treaty. There's Wilson's signature uh, on the treaty. Now in Germany, though, the peace is seen as a diktat, a dictation, an enforced peace. This is not a peace in which Germany can get buy-in. And what you see from this German cartoon, you see the three leaders, the masters of the world, how are they going to maintain the peace? By stepping on the body of Germany. Swords there, avenging angels. Uh, Wilson, Wilson is seen by the German people as betraying them. They thought that he was going to come and temper even more the demands of the British and the French. In some ways, Wilson is then portrayed as the villain of this peace, that he's a hypocrite, He's as bad as Clemenceau and Lloyd George, if not even worse. Already at the beginnings, you see among German nationalists them attacking this peace settlement, seeing this as a betrayal, and in particular that America has betrayed Germany by not being an honest broker, not tempering enough the British and French demands. Well, Wilson comes back to the United States. He now has to sell this peace to the American people. He's involved now in what's called the treaty battle with the American Congress, with the Senate. Um, Wilson had taken a major role in pushing forward the covenant of the League of Nations. The covenant of the League of Nations was part of the peace treaty with Germany. Wilson wanted it as part of the peace treaty because he believed that that would ensure ensure 
that the United States would go into the League of Nations. And uh, the covenant has about 20-some articles to it. And here's a drawing showing Woodrow Wilson reading an early draft. You can see Clemenceau in front of him, the British statesman Balfour, uh, that he's uh, taking the lead in promoting this new international organization called the League of Nations that is going to preserve the peace, that the countries of the world will be involved in this league, and that together, whenever a dispute comes up, they will arbitrate it that this will be a way of preventing future wars. Also, the covenant calls for the world's powers to reduce the size of their armies and navies. Uh, Disarmament becomes a key element of the covenant as well. Well, in the U.S. Senate, there is a group of Republicans, about 10 to 15, who are called irreconcilables. There is no way they will agree to the treaty because they don't want the United States to join the League of Nations. Uh, Leading them is William Borough from Idaho and Hiram Johnson from California. And they were looking for a fight over this. There you can see. (laughs) Senator Johnson, he's ready to, well, yeah, take the fight. Um, But was compromise impossible? Couldn't you get to yes in all of this? Uh, And the way to do it is, can you amend the treaty, put what is called at the time reservations that meet some of the objections of uh, the senators? Henry Cabot Lodge, who was the leader of the Republicans in the Senate and also chairman of the Senate's uh, committee relations, is the one that takes the lead in trying to see if there can be a compromise that amendments can be put to the treaty. Uh, In particular, Article 10 of the Covenant is the one that causes the most concern. And I've highlighted the first sentence of Article 10. It says, The members of the League undertake to respect and preserve as against external aggression the territorial integrity and existing political independence of all members of the League. In other words, an attack against any one member of the League is an attack against us all. Sounds like Article 5 of the Atlantic Alliance that exists today. Uh, What happens, though, is uh, those who have reservations about the treaty says, well, aren't the American people to be asked about this? Doesn't the Congress declare war? (laughs) In other words, does the covenant of the League of Nations uh, supersede the Constitution of the United States? Uh, Why should we preserve the territorial integrity of the Japanese empire. Say Russia, Soviet Russia, attacks the Japanese empire. Should the United States become involved in that war? Or if there's a war between uh, Japan and China, should the U.S. be involved in that war? Uh, What about the British empire? The British empire spreads around the world. This is a guarantee of the British empire. And to many uh, Irish Americans, German Americans, they resented that. They said, why why should we be signing up to defend the British Empire? So there's a lot of reservation about this particular article. And so what's suggested is let's put some compromise language in, amendments, if you will, to the treaty that says, you know, this doesn't supersede the Constitution of the United States, that the American people, through their representatives in Congress, will be... Anyway, in retrospect, it all looks pretty reasonable, Uh, that you have some... That's a recognition of reality in some way. 
You're going to have to get some buy-in from the American people. By the way, the British and French governments both urged, if this is a problem in the United States, go ahead with these amendments. They had no problem with these amendments to the treaty. Well, uh, here's a cartoon of Senator Lodge bringing the treaty out of the operating room. In other words, the peace treaty is being just maimed and cut up uh, by by their uh, reservations. Uh, Lodge is a fascinating figure. It's clear that he wanted the United States to be part of some collective league to preserve the peace. At the same time, though, he's an ardent opponent of Wilson. He's a close friend of Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt died in January 1919. Uh, He sees as carrying on Theodore Roosevelt's legacy, both good and ill. Uh, He has reservations about the treaty. Uh, He would like to see the treaty passed, but again, with reservations. Wilson, however, initially toys with the idea of Can there be compromise? But instead, he decides to go on a speaking tour out west. He's going to convince the American people. He's going to go around the senators, go to public opinion, and convince the American people to convince their senators that they should vote for the treaty with no reservations. Well, here you see Woodrow Wilson in California and Berkeley, California. As you could see, he he drew big crowds when he went to speak. Wilson was one of the great orators, speakers of his time. Uh, He was very much moved by the reception that he received. Here he is in late September in Pueblo, Colorado. Um, He was especially struck that when he would go speaking, children would come up to him and present him with gifts. Mothers uh, who had lost sons fighting in France, came up to him and would say, God bless you, President Wilson. He was deeply moved by the reception that he received on this speaking tour out west. Uh, What he told people is that his clients, the people that he is most concerned about, are the children right now, these children that are greeting him. He wants to have a peace that will ensure that this next generation doesn't have to fight another world war that the children that he sees will not be called upon, as he said, to do a similar errand to what the soldiers had done in the First World War. Well, while in Pueblo, Colorado, while delivering his speech, he became weak, uh, became ill, and uh, the speaking tour was canceled. His doctor, Dr. Grayson, uh, uh, ended the tour, and Wilson was sent back to Washington quickly by train. Once back in Washington, he suffered a stroke. Wilson had long history of uh, hypertension and had suffered previous uh, minor strokes. This one, though, is more debilitating, paralyzing his left side. For a month or so, it was touch and go through October and into November of 1919. He was closely guarded by his second wife, Edith, by his uh, political advisor, Joseph Tumulty, and also by Dr. Grayson. Um, At the time, it was thought, well, should he be replaced by the vice president? The vice president, Vice President Marshall, didn't want to be president, by the way. So he was, was, I'm going to try to go along with this, that the president is fine. By December, the president is better and can start seeing 
people again. But again, he's closely controlled who goes in to see him. The British ambassador wanted to go in and see him uh, and say, hey, the British government is fine with a compromise on the, on the League of Nations. And uh, he was refused. He was refused. They wouldn't let him in to see the president. Well, there were three votes on the treaty in the winter of 1919-1920, and each time the treaty is defeated. Uh, Hardliners on all sides. The irreconcilables, no way will they vote for the treaty, even with uh, reservations. Those that want reservations cannot get enough votes to ratify the treaty, and those, the Democrats, who support President Wilson that there should be no reservations whatsoever can't get enough votes to support the treaty. The result is deadlock, stalemate. Uh, After three attempts, the treaty is turned down by the Senate. Now, in 1923, just a few months before his death in 1924, Woodrow Wilson gave a radio broadcast to the United States on the fifth anniversary of November 11th, 95 years ago. You can go to YouTube and listen to it. You hear very much a bitter and sick man talking. And from this radio broadcast, he says this, that we turned our backs on the rest of the world and refused to take a part in the administration of the peace. Again, we withdrew into what? A sullen and selfish isolation. Again, the interwar period is often considered, the period between the two world wars is often considered a period of American isolationism. You can see Wilson using this phrase here of isolation. We're cutting ourselves off from the world. And it's deeply ignoble. Why? Because it's cowardly and dishonorable. And we've done a great wrong by isolating ourselves in this, one of the most critical turning points in the history of the world. Well, Woodrow Wilson, as you can see here, very much a broken man. The world in the First World War was broken as well. This broken man tried to bring America into the world, to play a larger role, to preserve the peace that had been attained. But his unwillingness to compromise in the domestic political environment, that hostile, intensely partisan political atmosphere in the United States led to the United States not playing that larger role in the world. Uh, The American people, quite simply, were not ready for that role. Well, it would take another world war before the American people realized that the United States had to play a greater leadership role in the world. And hence, the legacy of Wilson is to recognize that the United States cannot cut ourselves off from other countries that share our values in the world. Thank you. Let me uh, address some of the uh, questions that um, uh, Alex has brought up here. Um, 
how were historic enemies, England and France, able to cooperate during the war? Uh, and did one country play a greater role in forging the wartime alliance? These are great questions. Um, England and France had been historic enemies throughout the 19th century, going back, in fact, to the 18th, 17th century. The British and French fought seven wars against each other from the 1680s down to 1815. Um, 19th century, they were rivals as well. Excuse me. But during the First World War, the threat from Germany was so overriding that the British believed that their security was caught up in French security. So they, they cooperated with uh, France by going to war to help defend France from Germany. And during the war, the cooperation, it had its ups and downs. But by and large, um, the threat was so overriding that the British and French were forced to cooperate with, uh, with uh, each other. Now, once the, uh, the war was over and Germany had been defeated and had less power, all of a sudden you see uh, British and French rivalries reemerging again, especially in the Middle East uh, after the First World War. So as the German threat went down, the British-French rivalry came back again. Uh, one of the sad tales of the period between the two world wars, one of the tragic dimensions of it, is that Britain and France should have cooperated more fully during the 20s and 30s than, than what they did. Um, uh, and, and again, because older rivalries had come back uh, before. Uh, did one country play a greater role in forging the wartime alliance? Um, there's a real cooperation between France, Britain, and as the U.S. comes into the war. And I, I'm not sure I could say that one country was a leader of the coalition. Again, there's the big three that you see here of Clemenceau, Lloyd George, and Wilson. They're equal, and they see themselves as equals. In the Second World War, you're going to see the, the big three of Winston Churchill, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Stalin. And again, um, all of them see themselves as leaders of the coalition. Um, uh, and there's a lot of hard bargaining that goes on uh, amongst those, uh, those three. So I, I don't think I could say that one country played a greater role uh, than the other. You know, if any country played a role in forging uh, the, the alliance, it's the Germans. Um, you know, the Germans drove these countries together by attacking them all. Um, so that, that, that's, that's the real motivation here. Um, what are your thoughts on the position that Germany should have been forced to surrender rather than being offered an armistice? That, that is a great question, too. Um, at the end, uh, General Pershing, our commander in France, wanted to continue to fight. The Republicans, as part of their uh, campaign for the midterm elections in 1918, they called for the unconditional surrender of Germany. Uh, again, hearkening back to the American Civil War and U.S. Grant, Unconditional Surrender Grant. Uh, and this became part of the Republican campaign, which is the U.S. has to fully prosecute this war to the complete defeat of Germany, that the Allied and Associated Armies should be marching into Germany, to Berlin, so that the Germans know that they're completely defeated. So Pershing was uh, someone who was an ardent proponent of that, And again, there was domestic political support in the U.S. for that. Um, Interestingly, though, the British and French, uh, including the British and French military officers, while they saw the German army morale cracking and breaking and the offensives were being successful against the Germans, at the same time, they also were aware of the high casualties that were being taken by the British, French, and American armies. Right down to the end, 
the British, French, and American armies are taking high casualties. Um, over 26,000 Americans are killed in the Meuse-Argonne offensive from the end of September through October into uh, November 11th. In fact, one minute before the armistice on November 11th, there's an American soldier who went over the top and charged a German machine gun battery. And uh, one minute before the armistice, by the way, the German machine gunners didn't want to shoot him. They were waving at him. You know, hey, the armistice is coming in a minute. Stop, stop, stop. They don't, stop this. And he kept coming at them, shooting his pistol at them. So they shot him down. Imagine that. Well, anyway, so um, the Allied leaders were also aware that, yes, you can continue the war into Germany and demand unconditional surrender, but the result would be heavy casualties. So um, with the advantage of hindsight, it looks as if we should have continued fighting. But in the context of the time, you have to remember the trade-off. The trade-off is higher casualties. The armistice basically disarms Germany. As part of the armistice terms, they have to give up their artillery, large numbers of machine guns, turn over their submarines, their surface ships of their navy, uh, their air force. Uh, Germany, in, in effect, under the terms of the armistice, can no longer effectively resist in a conventional fight the Allied armies. Plus, the Allied armies get bridgeheads over the Rhine to be able to continue the offensive if the Germans don't sign the peace treaty. Again, there's a difference between the armistice of November 11th and the peace treaty of June 28th, six-month period of time there. So, um, I, I, you know, in looking at it and back, we could say, yeah, maybe push on. But I think they more or less got the right decision, which is call an, uh, an end to this, this uh, quickly. Um, the failing is not so much uh, not continuing the offensive, I would argue, but I think in... in um, what follows afterwards and how you reconcile Germany to its defeat. And that, that is really going to be very hard to do. Um, here's a question. German immigrants in the U.S. living in America were reluctant to go to war against Germany. Did this opinion, uh, if true, change as the war progressed? There were a lot of German and Irish Americans who um, um, didn't like the idea of fighting for the British Empire. Uh, during the war. So there, there was a lot of hostility to uh, uh, going to war uh, among the American public. In fact, Theodore Roosevelt was so angry uh, at what he called hyphenated Americans, Irish Americans, German Americans in this regard. And he, he attacked them uh, uh, for not seeing that Britain was fighting for the cause of civilization, as he would say, and that the Germans were the Huns, the barbarians. So uh, one of the things that has to happen in this uh, uh, time that Wilson has to deal with is convince the American people, uh, uh, all ethnic groups, of how important it is to be involved in, in this war. Over time, German-Americans, Irish-Americans become very patriotic uh, because of the German actions with unrestricted submarine warfare, the Zimmerman Telegraph and the rest. This alienates American public so that when Wilson goes to war, asked for a declaration of war in April 1917, the American public is very much behind what he is uh, doing. Whereas six months before, uh, they weren't there. It took German provocation crossing that red line uh, for the American people to be convinced, including German-Americans and Irish-Americans. Do you think the Treaty of Versailles was connected to the rise of of Hitler? Um, Hitler certainly railed against the Versailles Treaty, 
uh, part of his appeal and that of other German nationalist extremist groups was that the Versailles Treaty has to be overthrown, abolished. And they use that as a, their, a part of their political platform to gain popularity uh, in Germany between the two world wars. What you see, though, um, is that the Versailles Treaty is harsh in some respects. In other ways, it's, it's not all that harsh. Um, the portions of territory that are taken away from Germany, for example, to create the Polish state, Alsace-Lorraine is French-speaking, Schleswig uh, is Danish-speaking. Basically, national minorities within the German Empire, Poles, Danes, and French, are now going back to other countries. Um, very few actually ethnic Germans are going into other countries. Um, so as, as a consequence, the Versailles Treaty, when you look at it, I don't know how harsh it is. Um, it was always believed that Germany would eventually join the League of Nations. And indeed, Germany did join the League of Nations in the late 1920s. So Germany is becoming more and more reconciled to its defeat and a force of stability within Europe. Now, what upsets all of that, what I would argue is more important than the Versailles Treaty, is, of course, the Great Depression. The Great Depression is such an economic catastrophe that it it fuels extremism uh, around the world. And uh, the result is that the Nazis uh, come to power in large part because of the economic downturn that takes place. You know, I'm not dismissing the importance of Versailles in the propaganda of the Nazi movement, but it's the economic downturn that uh, takes the, the Nazis from being an extremist fringe party to where they're acceptable to about a third uh, of the German public in elections. In the last real free election in, in uh, Germany, the uh, Nazis were scoring uh, about 33% of the vote, about a third of, uh, of, of the vote. So um, they go from a small party to a big party in large part because of the Great Depression. But again, Hitler does uh, use Versailles, so it is connected to the rise of, of Hitler. Uh, most Germans, even though even those who are not nationalist extremists, still thought that Versailles was an unfair treaty and had to be uh, amended in some way. And over time, the Allies were willing to amend it. Reparations payments were initially set at a high level. They came down. Germany uh, was occupied, Western Germany, by Allied forces. That occupation ended. Um, all of that before uh, Hitler came to power. And as I said, Germany came into the League of Nations. So Germany's being reconciled. I I think you can overstate Versailles as a cause of the Second World War. Uh, I think other things were more important. How do you think Wilson would respond to the Trump presidency, given the similar views on white supremacy but opposing views on globalization? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, You know, you know, the, the, uh, what you see at this time is that um, uh, Wilson and also Republicans at the time are, are use that phrase, America first, that President Trump also uh, used. You know, America first became associated with the isolationist movement in the interwar period. Uh, and until President Trump revived it, uh, it was generally considered, well, wrongheaded that America... Obviously, you put your own country first, but America has to be more involved in the world. Uh, What's fascinating about this earlier time is that that phrase, America first, is used all the time. 
uh, it's a commonplace. Uh, it is that obviously you put it, the U.S. interest first uh, uh, in, in, in the world. But again, it took on a pejorative con- uh, context uh, in the wake of the Second World War when America first was seen as being associated with isolationism and hence contributing to the Second uh, World War. So I, 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 you know, I, I don't have my Ouija board here, so I, I can't uh, ask uh, Wilson uh, what he would uh, think about this. Uh, clearly, Wilson, um, he was a hard bargainer with, the, um, uh, with, uh, our, uh, uh, with other countries that we were associated with. Notice that the United States was never an ally of Britain and France. The United States went into the war as an associated power with the allies. Hence, the coalition is referred to as the allied and associated powers. Wilson wanted to make clear that the United States, in going to war with Britain and France against Germany, did not buy off on their war aims that the United States, whatever secret agreements Britain and France had made with each other about what the post-war world would look like, what territories they might have, that Wilson uh, didn't accept that. Uh, So, again, there's that that sense that America is exceptional, different, and uh, should bargain in a hard way with its allies. So, um, again, I guess President Trump would look at Wilson and say, oh, well, I'm I'm just like him. I bargain tough with allies and NATO and all all the rest. Uh, um, With regard to white supremacy, Wilson was definitely a racist. Part of the League of Nations is to create mandatory territories that uh, areas of the world that are not ready yet for democracy but will be supervised by civilized powers. Eventually, they will be able to uh, attain full membership in the League of Nations. So there's certainly a racial hierarchy that you see at, 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 at this time. But that's not unique, of course, to Wilson. It's also the case for Lloyd George Clemenceau, the, the, the great powers of, of the time. So um, I, I'm giving you a wishy-washy answer on that because I'm not sure uh, how, how to mix together apples and oranges and come quite and all the rest uh, uh, with this. Um, Do I have time for uh, more? Uh, You mentioned spreading democracy around the world. Uh, Are there uh, some countries today who cannot function as a democracy? Uh, Again, that sort of leads into the uh, previous thing, which is that um, the United States at the end of the First World War thought that some countries really weren't ready yet for membership in the League because they couldn't function fully as democracies. One of the things that happens in Germany is that with the overthrow of the Kaiser's regime, you have um, a democracy proclaimed, the so-called Weimar Republic. Uh, And that is a more acceptable partner to the United States in the world now that the Kaiser's regime, the militarist regime, is gone and it's been replaced by uh, a, a regime that draws its most support from center and center-left parties in Germany. So um, there is a case that uh, for the United States, Britain, and France, it is these Germans are Germans that we can deal with that are going to be acceptable uh, as part of a a league to preserve uh, the the peace. You know, clearly there are are countries uh, uh, that that the United States, uh, Britain and France in the interwar period saw, well, no, they, they, they you know, they, they can't be true partners. Uh, again, with the rise of Hitler, 
uh, the growing realization in Britain uh, and in the United States, you can't deal with the man. Yeah, he's such a menace and danger to uh, uh, the, the international realm that, um, uh, that he has to be overthrown. And hence, in the Second World War, unconditional surrender is, is argued by Franklin D. Roosevelt is essential for um, the peace. You can't negotiate with uh, the, the Nazi uh, regime. With regard to the world today... Uh, you know, obviously, places where there's lack of good governance, where there's civil war and violence, uh, those are not places where you can have well-ordered uh, government and uh, participatory uh, uh, democracy. So peace and democracy go hand-in-hand hand with each other. Countries that are more peaceful uh, and uh, regimes that are at peace with their own people are, again, going to be regimes so the theory would say, that leads to it being more peaceful on the world stage as, as well. So wherever there is a breakdown of law, order, governance, um, you're going to find an end to democracy there, and hence those become what we call today zones of conflict around the world. How did combat soldiers deal with the trauma after the war? Um, th- this is a, um, a, an important topic important question, because after the First World War, you have um, thousands and thousands who have been uh, uh, maimed by the war. Uh, There's visual reminders all the time on the streets uh, of the major countries of the cost of the war, of soldiers who have lost limbs, uh, been disfigured uh, by the war. So there's constant memories of, of that. There's also the rise of various veteran organizations uh, uh, during this time. Um, There there is, not today, the the same sort of uh, understanding of the psychological trauma of of war. Um, uh, I mean, today I hope that we are much better prepared in dealing with that than uh, in those times. There was a great deal of resentment among American veterans uh, that they weren't being treated fairly after the war. Um, one of the things that happened, in fact, after the war was that there was going to be a bonus given out to American uh, soldiers who had fought. And the incoming uh, Harding administration said that this was a budget buster and vetoed the bill. The Congress then overrode his veto. And so uh, you have nothing sort of the equivalent of the GI Bill that comes into effect uh, after the Second World War. Uh, Indeed, there's a lot of lessons learned from the interwar period. And, of course, we remember, too, the bonus marchers. Again, uh, because of the Great Depression, soldiers who had fought in the First World War felt that they were entitled, uh, deserved a, a bonus. They camped out in Washington, and General MacArthur, who was then chief of staff of the Army, Um, uh, ordered by President Hoover, went and uh, removed them from the mall in uh, Washington. So, uh, again, that it was seen that they weren't being treated well. One of the things that I find fascinating, though, in the British uh, case, which I've studied uh, uh, more than the French case and the American case, is that how, um, after the First World War, many of the veterans, they were were so anti-German in outlook, that uh, after the, um, when the Second World War occurred, uh, there's a call for volunteers for the Home Guard. All of these World War I veterans came out, and it was like, oh, I can't wait to fight the Germans again. 
you know, I thought we taught them a lesson the first time, and now, you know, they're back again. Uh, so um, the, the veterans' organizations tended to be very patriotic, uh, even though they had been through the crucible of war. They nonetheless, they wanted to have that war have meaning. They didn't want to see the Germans win again. Now, in the German case, um, the, the veterans' organizations, many of them feed into the nationalist extremist movements uh, and hence uh, overturn democracy with, within Germany. So there, the veterans' uh, groups uh, are, are not a force for international peace and stability. Hitler, of course, was very proud of the fact that he was a veteran of the First World War, had been wounded and had received the Iron Cross first class and been promoted to corporal uh, in the German army. And so he, he played up the fact that he was a veteran and that uh, patriotic veterans should be committed to overthrowing Versailles and, and, uh, and um, overturning what uh, uh, Germany's defeat. So, again, there the veterans played a major role in destabilizing democracy in Germany. Um, on a recent visit to the U.S., the Polish president thanked Wilson and the U.S. for the establishment of modern Poland thoughts. Yes, as part of the 14 points in January 1918, and then as part of the peace settlement, uh, an independent Polish state had, was uh, created with access to the Baltic um, Sea. So uh, Wilson is a major figure in promoting uh, uh, the Polish state. Uh, during the 18th century, uh, there had been a kingdom of Poland, but Prussia, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Russia had partitioned Poland. And so for... Um, the end of the 18th century down to the First World War, uh, no independent Polish state existed. The Poles were the largest uh, ethnic group in Europe that did not have their own state. They were divided up among three other countries. Uh, And, of course, Polish nationalists resented this. Often they rose up in uh, rebellion against the Russian state. Um, uh, there were several uh, major rebellions against the Tsarist regime. So this was seen as being a force of stability in Europe by creating a Polish uh, state uh, in, in Eastern Europe. So um, I, the Polish president is right to thank Wilson for that. Wilson was not alone in believing that. The French and the British also wanted to create an independent Polish state as, as well. But Wilson enunciated that as part of his 14 uh, uh, points. Um, what are your question? Uh, what are your views on the question of German war guilt? Um, Article two thirty two of the Versailles Treaty specifically blames Germany for starting the war, and this becomes the legal foundation for imposing reparations on Germany uh, that they should somehow pay um, uh, to other countries because they were most responsible, uniquely responsible in some way for the outbreak of war. And, and I, 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 I think that's basically right. Um, in uh, July of uh, 1914, uh, the German government could have put its foot on the brakes. Instead, they put their foot on the accelerator panel. Uh, 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 and the result is that Germany does play a larger role in bringing on the war than, um, than the other uh, major capitals. Germany could have restrained Austria-Hungary more than what they did. Instead, they tended to encourage Austria-Hungary. The German leaders um, 
they didn't um, they didn't shy away from provoking a war against Russia and France. The German leaders were concerned about fighting, having to fight Britain as well as France and Russia. But uh, the the Germans could have played a more constructive role in the crisis that leads to the war in 1914. So I, I think that there's some some basis for that that uh, Article 232. I think I would sign up for that. Now, today, there's a, a great deal of, and there has been since the time of the Versailles Treaty, a big discussion among historians um, and then into the public about whether that was justified or not. And to this day, this is a, a question that gets argued by historians. And essentially, it is that Germany is uniquely responsible or no, everybody was responsible in some way for the war. And, you know, clearly it's somewhere in between, but I tend to lean toward the German responsibility for, for the war. And then uh, German actions in France and Belgium during the war, the amount of damage that they did, was such that there had to be, after Germany's defeat, there had to be some way that Germany would uh, make some recompense for the damage that, that they did. So... Uh, again, if there has to be a legal basis for it, Article 232 makes sense to, to me. Um, another question. Outrage about the sinking of the Lusitania was based on the assertion that the ship was a passenger ship. It was not transporting war material. Is it true that the Lusitania was actually transporting arms um, discovered on board? The, the, the Lusitania was carrying uh, cargoes that um, certainly could support war effort, ammunition, and, and, and the rest. And this is part of the German uh, defense for sinking the Lusitania, was that, yeah, it's a passenger ship, but these passengers are being endangered. Uh, and in fact, a few days before the Lusitania sailed, the German government took out an ad and said, we've declared these war zones around the British Isles, so you travel at your own risk. Uh, if you're smart, you don't, you, you don't want to uh, uh, travel to, to England uh, because um, you're going into a war zone. By the way, within the United States, uh, uh, some American leaders agreed with that German point of view. Uh, Woodrow Wilson's first uh, Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, the great populist uh, leader, uh, he believed that Wilson, uh, Wilson's neutrality favored too much Britain and France, and that it was actually uh, a neutrality that he put the thumb on the scales toward Britain and France and against Germany. And so Brian, he, he didn't approve of the harder line that Wilson was taking in this. Eventually, Brian resigned because he thought, as Secretary of State, because he thought that Wilson was taking too hard a line against Germany. So Wilson is trying to thread the needle, you know, uh, to mix all my metaphors, you know, go, go one, you know, between the, the uh, Theodore Roosevelt on the one side, why don't we get to war right now, and William Jennings Bryan, who's saying, no, we're favoring the British and French too much, and we're being needlessly hostile to the Germans, who have a good case that uh, American war supplies are going on ships like the Lusitania and um, are hence somehow legitimate targets uh, for sinking by the, the, the Germans. Uh, again, Wilson uh, is quite astute in his politics in being able to find that middle ground between the, the two uh, views of war with Germany or uh, stay out of the war com uh, completely. So... Um, 
um, on, on this, there are Americans at the time who would agree uh, with the German point of view. In the interwar period, in the, in the 30s, this leads to the various neutrality legislation, which is that American ships will not go into war zones. Um, this becomes very hard for Franklin D. Roosevelt to overcome. Um, <clears throat> and again, it's a response of the American public after the First World War that we were dragged into the war by pro-British financiers and manufacturers, merchants of death, uh, that uh, only the 1% benefited from this war, daddy war bucks. But the American people didn't benefit from this war. So you see a revulsion against uh, Wilson, leaning more toward William Jennings Bryan and his populist views during uh, the, the 30s. Um, Another question, why did the Royal Navy extend the German blockade beyond the armistice? Do you consider this a war crime? This this is um, a a really good question because one of the things that leads to the Germans' um, hostility to the whole peace settlement is that the British maintain uh, the blockade as an instrument of coercion against Germany between the armistice and the signing of the peace treaty. Again, the armistice takes place on November 11th, 1918. The peace treaty isn't signed until June 28th, 1919. There's six months of negotiation that goes on there. The Allied armies are being drawn down. Americans are coming home from over there. The British and French armies are also being downsized. While the German armed forces have been cut back severely by the armistice terms, Nonetheless, the Allied armies have also come down. So there was a big question is, what if Germany doesn't sign the Versailles Treaty? They could have walked away. They could have said, no, we're not going to sign it. In fact, what they did was, when the Germans got the, 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 the treaty, they said, hey, can we modify the treaty? Can we amend the treaty? Can we have reservations to it? Uh, in particular, Article 232 that I just talked about. And uh, Wilson... Clemenceau and Lloyd George, the British, French, and American government said, no, there's no negotiation here with you. You have to accept the treaty as stands. Um, So uh, the way you get the Germans to sign the treaty is always the threat of the blockade and also that the Allied armies, British, American, and French, uh, are across the Rhine and will march on Berlin. And so from May to June uh, 1919, what you see is that the Allied military leaders are preparing for a march on Berlin because it's 50-50. They don't know if the Germans will sign the treaty or not. And if they don't sign the treaty, they're going to march on Berlin uh, and, and, and occupy more of Germany and hence compel the Germans to uh, sign the peace treaty. Now, not all leaders agreed with this harder approach to Germany during the, the negotiations. One person who stands out, in fact, is Winston Churchill. Right after the armistice occurred on November 11th, he um, went to 10 Downing Street, the British Prime Minister's residence, through the, 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 the crowds that were on the street celebrating the end of the war. He got to Downing Street and he said to Lloyd George, he said, right now what we ought to do is load up uh, some large ships with lots of grain, lots of food, and send them right into Hamburg. You know, feed the German people right now because they're hungry. You know, let's, let's show that we can 
now that we've won, that they've been defeated, that we're going to make sure that they don't starve. And um, Lloyd George says, no, we can't do that. Public opinion won't permit that. Uh, We're we're not going to do that. Germans are, no, we're going to keep the uh, uh, coercion on them. And what you see is in that period of six months between the armistice and the signing of the peace treaty, the German people are hungry. Uh, it's hard to, um, uh, I, I've read through all the, uh, a number of reports from British and American attaches and diplomats who were in Germany, and they're reporting back honestly about just how tough conditions are in Germany. And the fear is that conditions are so tough that the uh, German government will be overthrown by extremists of either the right or the left, and that the allies and associated powers want to do more to provide food to Germany in this, in this critical time. But again, it's seen as this is how we coerce them to sign the peace treaty. Uh, and I, I think that was a mistake. Again, this is in the implementation over those six months. You, you could still be coercive in the sense your armies are there ready to march, but at the same time uh, try somehow to make sure that the German public uh, isn't suffering from the severe food shortages, uh, which uh, they, they, they did. And that's it. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.